KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. Hi, listeners. This is part two of Brian Keating's quest to find clues about the birth of our universe. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and do that first. Things will make a lot more sense. When we left off, Brian had just heard that BICEP2 may have collected some interesting data. Two iterations of the telescope, years of planning and data collection, and the numbers revealed something stunning. So you want to know presumably what happened in four years ago in, in 2014. We ended up finding that the signal that we saw was exactly the signal that you'd see if inflation took place. The shape, it had all the, you know, it had the, it had the footprints of this inflationary universe, almost, you know, from central casting. It was so perfect. There it was, that ripple in the cosmic microwave background, a signal from the very birth of the universe. Or was it? This is Rad Scientist. Where the scientist becomes the subject. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The signal. So the BICEP2 team saw the signal they set out to see, a discovery for the ages. But before they got too cozy with that notion, they knew that they had to rule out every other possibility that could explain that beautiful signal. We spent more than a year trying to diagnose what could have caused it other than the universe. One big theory is that the kinds of swirls they saw could just come from dust particles that came between the detector and the cosmic microwave background. Because this pattern of dust, not in the you know, early universe, but in our local galaxy, can exactly mimic and, and be the uh, imposter signal that tricks you into thinking you found the Big Bang. We're not talking about the kind of dust that you pick up in a vacuum cleaner. It's, it's more like, like soot or particles that have come from a previously exploded supernova. So these are particles of iron, and you know that iron is magnetic. So magnetic fields can align the dust and make it swirl and twist and curl just like the pattern of microwaves. The team was well aware that these dust signals could be an issue, and they tried modeling the dust in different ways, basically trying to figure out how much of the signal they saw was from dust and how much was from the cosmic microwave background. But the data that would really tell them how much dust they were seeing had recently been collected by another team with another telescope. The Planck satellite was measuring that dust, among other things, and they hadn't published their data yet, so the BICEP2 team asks if they can see it and check against their models of the dust. And they turned us down multiple times. And now the BICEP2 folks are all thinking that they know why the Planck team might be holding back. They wanted to make the detection and they wanted to win the Nobel Prize themselves. So Brian and colleagues need to get their hands on that data. But how? They knew that a Planck team member had recently presented some data from the satellite at a small conference. 
and we found this slide. You know, it was kind of like gold for us. And we knew it was kind of unorthodox to get his slide and then digitize it and scrub it and then make the map of dust that we thought his slides represented. Uh, but we had we felt we had no other choice. Yeah, the team literally took a PDF of the slide, converted the pixels into numbers, and analyzed that data. From their analysis of the slide, it looked as though the amount of dust couldn't account for their signal. I can only imagine the collective sigh from the BICEP2 team. But Brian describes a different feeling. Once you get to a certain point as a scientist, the most, you know, kind of terrifying feeling that you feel is, is when you see something that you, you were looking for and you re- there's really no other explanation for it as far as you can tell. You've ruled out all the possible contending hypotheses. So what you're left with is maybe you did what you were trying to set out to do. And that's a very um, that's a very nerve wracking experience. And most scientists, you know, maybe maybe if they have it, they have it once in their career. The team writes their paper as quickly as possible and includes the analysis from the scrubbed slide. They upload the paper onto an open source archive. By doing that, we established that we had staked our claim. So even though it hadn't been peer reviewed, if there were to be a Nobel Prize and Planck were to come along right after us and claim, oh, we saw the same thing, we would be the ones. That is rather standard these days, to post your paper online before it has gone through peer review, before it gets accepted and published in a journal. What is not standard is to hold a press conference on your findings before that process of checks and balances has been done. We felt we had to go public first because the announcement was so important and word would get out and people would, you know, leak it to the media, etc. So the leaders of BICEP2 gather to address the media. The press conference. The day the press conference was held at Harvard, I wasn't there. He hadn't been invited. Brian felt a twang of betrayal and of jealousy. It, it was it was definitely a de, uh, you know depressing on one hand not to be there, uh, you know, in front of you know the the world's media. This was a huge announcement. You know, I knew that day that I had been written out of the credits <laughs> uh, by the other leaders of the experiment, and I think. You know, if it weren't for the high stakes nature of what we claim we detected, I don't think I would have been put in the position that I was. I think once it became clear that we had this detection, that we were going to detect this, you know, thing that was Nobel worthy, I think then people started to really circle the wagons and ask, well, what did that Keating guy really do for us lately? And and that was disappointing because I think, you know, in science, there's so few times in science when you can make a discovery, let alone one for the ages, you know, to, to intentionally not be as all-inclusive. I think that's, you know, that's a harbinger of, of, of negative things for science. Brian still watched the conference. He was still somewhat proud that his initial idea had led to this discovery. I was here watching it in San Diego on the Internet, and it was live streamed on YouTube and uh, from the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard. And, I, and my, uh, one of my graduate students who had worked on BICEP spent almost a year in total of his life at the South Pole. He was there uh, with his girlfriend, and everyone was just really excited. And my colleagues from around the physics department and from beyond were all huddled together. Uh, we have four scientists representing the BICEP2 collaboration. In the press conference audience were Alan Guth, the first person to propose the inflationary theory, and the two discoverers of the cosmic microwave background, Penzias and Wilson, who won the Nobel Prize for it in 1978. 
They were packed in a small room. The four project leaders in the front, wearing matching Bicep 2 t-shirts over their collared dress shirts, and their excitement shows on their grinning faces. This is not something that's just a home run, but a grand slam. It's the smoking gun for inflation, and these results are as extraordinary as they get, and they will require the most extraordinary scrutiny. So we must therefore wait before buying any tickets to Stockholm. <laughs> the human drama, it was just so well scripted. There was a YouTube video that came out the day of the announcement that showed one of these original theoretical physicists that were was one of the pioneers of the theory behind the inflationary universe. And he was basically, you know, he walks up with one of my colleagues on the experimental team and he tells him that we detected these waves of gravity, inflation. He has no idea that I'm coming. Oh. What? Hi. So I have a surprise for you. Wow. It's what five sigma at point two. Discovery. Yes. What? <laughs> Just a second. Can, 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 can you repeat it? And he and his wife, they're weeping and they're toasting with champagne. <laughs> Finally, they arrived. Cheers. Cheers. Congratulations. 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 Oh my God. You got like two million hits that yes. day. If this is true, this is a moment of understanding of nature of such a magnitude that it just overwhelms. Bicep 2 is on the front page of the, of the New York Times, the San Diego Union Tribune, the LA Times, you know, all sorts of newspapers, magazines. Coming up next on Arizona Horizon, big news today on the Big Bang. Physicists claimed a potentially exciting discovery yesterday, a faint signal from moments after the universe began. This is huge. You can't, you can't be too hyperbolic about this. This could be one of the greatest scientific discoveries ever. It's a mind-boggling concept. Our cosmos expanded from almost nothing. This is not only a Nobel Prize, but this is a game changer. There were people saying I would win the Nobel Prize, other people on the team would win the Nobel Prize. That summer, though, almost immediately after, of course, there are people that wanted to, you know, attach their fame to Bicep 2 by bringing us down. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and a single experimental claim should never be trusted. Other experiments are hot on the heels of the announcement, so it won't be long before scientists find out whether their expanding model of the early universe is just a lot of hot air. To find out if it was all just hot air, stick around after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. After the press conference, the critiques of Bicep 2's interpretations start flowing in. So that summer was really on pins and needles for me. It was like enemies, you know, beating down, beating their swords into plowshares. So they started to complain that they found errors in our in our analysis, and then we would have to respond to those. Kind of at first, we were, we were kind of putting out fires as fast as they popped up. And then we started to get even more rumors that, that this very sophisticated analysis was being undertaken at Princeton University. And, and Princeton University is like, you know, basically the Inquisition in Cosmology. I mean, they're the, you know, they have this tremendously astute group of theoreticians, of experimentalists. They started to pick at our results. And I started to think, what's their motivation? Are they, is it jealousy on their behalf? 
It turns out my friend was the first author on that paper. Rather than a motivation of jealousy, he describes it more as a motivation of skepticism, the kind that puts checks and balances on scientific discoveries and refines theories and interpretations until we get closer to the truth. He and his colleagues had a feeling that the measurements made to predict the foreground dust were flawed. And one of the first things that they noticed was that the Bicep 2 team had made a mistake when scrubbing that slide with the Planck satellite data. The way that we used that slide was in, inappropriate. We shouldn't have used it both on a collegial level to take somebody else's data and use it in a way it wasn't intended, but more that it was just not the data that we thought it was. You know, it was not, it was not the correct tool to use to remove this pernicious foreground called dust. And so they showed that that analysis was wrong. And furthermore, they showed that the, that the signal from dust that could still be remaining in our signal after the proper accounting for it was still almost as large as the signal that we had claimed from inflation. According to the Princeton team, what they had was just dust in the wind. Well, space wind. But the most convincing evidence would come from the Planck data whenever it was released. Brian is in Italy, giving a lecture at the villa where Galileo spent the last nine years of his life, when Planck's data drops. What was previously heralded as the most important, cosmically significant scientific discovery of the decade has just been dealt a crippling blow, and it's all thanks to a patch of space dust. The true answer happened to be Bicep 2 was wrong when it claimed that it had detected inflation. I remember at one conference I spoke at, you know, a young postdoc in the back, she was yelling at me, oh, why'd you do this? Why'd you do the press conference? I said, did you see me at the press conference? Like, I wasn't there. You know, don't blame me for that. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, I, I definitely had a part in it, and I didn't, I could have withdrawn my name from it. Why didn't Brian withdraw his name? Why had they made a premature conclusion from their data and broadcast it? Brian felt like the pursuit of the Nobel Prize, the ego-driven tendencies of scientists, led to many dark parts of his story, like the upset over his collaboration with Polar Bear, the feeling like you had to pick teams and that only one team could win, the scrubbed slide, the haste of the press conference. It's a natural urge for, to, for humans to want to get credit, and scientists, despite all stereotypes, are humans. It's hard to know what the Bicep 2 leaders were thinking if they were really driven by the prize or just by the excitement of detecting one of the earliest signs from our universe. What is clear is that the prize was at the forefront of Brian's mind. He recalled reading books by Nobel laureates as a teen and how someone in his graduate school class actually won the prize. There's no accolade higher than that, not the uh, Grammys, not the Latin Grammys even, or certainly not even the Oscars. But, but really, the Nobel Prizes really seek to recognize humanity's best and brightest. And, you know, the Nobel Prize is really the highest of them all. The Nobel Prize. Every year in Scandinavia, on the day that Alfred Nobel died... And on one of the darkest days of the year, Nobel laureates gather to receive their prizes. Sylvia with Crown Princess Victoria and Prince Daniel have arrived. 
they have this this you know this huge hall filled with flowers that come from his mausoleum and they they tell the laureates what they have to wear and how they have to move and how they have to bow. it's exactly like a religious sacrament which is ironic because you know 90 percent of the winners of the prizes are atheists but no physics uh, laureate has ever refused it and man what a thing to shoot for even some of the best scientific discoveries never get recognized with the prize. Look, how many people don't win an Oscar every year? Most people don't win an Oscar. I didn't win an Oscar last year, did you? Um, so, you know, the most, more, much more common emotion is, is to not make it to the promised land of whatever your promised land may be. And how do you deal with that? How do you deal with, with the uh, disappointment, the depression, the, the regret, the resentment? Something had changed in Brian. It seems in part because of the experience with Bicep, too. He has become almost an evangelist against the Nobel Prize. We think that science has gotten rid of all these idols, but scientists worship idols just like anybody else does, and the idols happen to be uh, the winners of this gilded, graven image that bears the likeness of Alfred Nobel. I mean, Alfred Nobel wrote this will in 1895. He died a year later, and, and we're still trying to you know, pigeonhole modern science into this. Take the Bicep 2 story as an example. The Nobel Prize can only be won by three people, which makes, at most, which makes it, you know, kind of tricky because we had 50 people working on this experiment. And, you know, some, like uh, the postdocs that came after me, they had built upon what, what myself and my other colleagues that had founded the experiment and, and gotten the funding for it and gotten the permissions for it and built the buildings for it and done all the legwork in the beginning. You know, the, you, know you could make a case for, for any of these people. And it takes, it robs people of ambition to make discoveries if they think, well, my, my, my you know, contributions are never really going to be you know, recognized because it's only the, the graybeards that are leading it that they're the ones that are going to get all the attention. So what is the solution? Would it be better to just get rid of the prize and all science prizes for that matter? Brian doesn't want that, but he does think that reforms to the Nobel Prize are overdue. You know, I don't have uh, you know hostility towards the Nobel Prize. In, in contrast, I really want it to thrive and, and to really recognize how science is done. Some of the reforms that Brian proposes are give awards to institutions or teams instead of individuals, add new categories that reflect modern science, like biology and computer science, and also give awards posthumously, <clears throat> Rosalind Franklin. So perhaps a facelift is in order, but I think the real lesson here is to not get caught up in the recognition and to focus more on the results and the process of doing science. That isn't lost on Brian. For me, the science that we get to do and the technology and the working with society's greatest and most intelligent minds that's the reward. That's what, that's what I want to do. So what happened after BICEP2? How did the dust settle? For one, the BICEP2 team realized that the Planck team, whose data put the kibosh on their interpretation, they weren't holding back data because they had found the signal. It was actually because they hadn't finished analyzing their own data. And scientists are usually reluctant to give up their data uh, until to give it to somebody else to analyze until they've had a chance to, to, to uh, you know, fully vet it and analyze it themselves. Planck ended up collaborating with the BICEP2 team to do a joint analysis of their data. 
It wasn't that Bicep 2 was a total bust. In many ways, it was a proof of concept, just like Bicep 1. It made really accurate and sensitive measurements, which was a feat in and of itself. Finally, it gave the field a new upper limit on the signal they would need to see to confirm inflation. In some ways, perhaps minus the stolen slide and the press conference, this is just a typical science story. I mean, that's the way science works. You, you discover something, you go back, you iterate, you throw out the ideas that didn't work, and you improve upon things to make the next measurement better. The BICEP2 team wasn't penalized for their mistake. The two members who weren't tenured yet ended up getting tenure. And they continue to lead. Uh, the no- most recent incarnation of BICEP is called BICEP3. And um, they've taken away the acronym. They claim that they, it's no longer an acronym, which is kind of strange to me, but, but they no longer consider it an acronym. And then the next generation that they're proposing to build is called Bicep Array. So it's going to be, you know, many, many biceps. So it's going to be like, you know, four or five arms worth of biceps. And that will continue to be operating from the South Pole. In no way was the Bicep 2 snafu the end to the search for signs of inflation. Many teams are building new telescopes to look for these signs. Even Brian has a new project that he's leading. We've uh, undergone a construction and, and a new collaboration called the Simons Observatory, which I'm leading here from UC San Diego. And this experiment is a, is a $65 million experiment to be located in Chile. So we're, we're still in this mode. We're still in the hunt. We're still looking for it. The stakes have gotten even higher since the BICEP2 announcement. So the race is still on, looking for a signal that may never be seen because the dust may hide the signals or because the universe formed in a fundamentally different way. What if inflation didn't occur? There's many theories that say the universe began in other ways, um, and, and, and they're very compelling theories. So inflation may not have happened, in which case we'll never see anything with it. We'll just keep looking and going deeper and making finer and finer maps of what ends up being fundamentally, intrinsically noise, and that's all you see. But Brian is betting on inflation. Maybe he'll be the one to prove it. You still might find the signal. Yeah. And you may be positioned in such a way that you might get the credit. Let's say you are nominated mm-hmm. for a Nobel Prize. How, yeah. how will you feel about that, given your experiences? Well, yeah, if you want to see if I'm sincere about it, they just need to offer it to me and see if I turn them down. If you want to learn more about Brian's story, you can check out his book, Losing the Nobel Prize. The song you are listening to is by the very talented Tim Blaze, a.k.a. Acapella Science. He makes other fantastic science parody songs, so check him out on YouTube. Other music for this episode was by Zaggy2, Daniel Silvieri, Satunaman, HAL 9000, and Forkshire. All of space is alive with an Unblinking since matter was young. Looking for 
swarm that screams all the earlier scenes from our view of how the world was begun. We scour for clues still imprinted on that light waiting there to be found. At the South Pole we spy Within the black starless sky Great swirling forms In the plasma cloud In the surface of light That we'll use to show If inflation's Rad Scientist is produced and written by me, Margot Wall. Our theme guitar riff is by Grant Fisher, logo by Kyle Fisher, no relation. This episode featured segments from the Harvard Bicep 2 press conference, Kraus on Science, the 2018 Nobel Award Ceremony, Newsy, Nature Video, and PBS NewsHour. At KPBS, Emily Jankowski is technical director, Kinsey Moreland is podcast coordinator, Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is director of programming. This program is made possible in part by the KPBS Explore Local Content Fund. If you like this episode, please review us on iTunes. It helps other people see the podcast. Thought you were getting away without a moment of Xenopus? You are wrong, my friend. This week's moment of Xenopus is cough, sneeze, Rosalind Franklin. <coughs> Rosalind Franklin. <coughs> Rosalind Franklin. <coughs> Rosalind Franklin. <coughs> Rosalind Franklin. A Rosalind Franklin. <laughs> All right, enough of that. Stay rad, y'all. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.